0: Hey y'all, I haven't done a Reconstruction episode, and I definitely am going to do one, but I learned from a book that recently came out that there is a Reconstruction narrative that ends with the Tulsa Race Massacre, whose centennial is this year. And that's because during and for a few decades after the Civil War, Oklahoma was not an American state. It was part of what was called Indian Territory. And Reconstruction played out in interesting and unique ways in Indian Territory. There, black people experienced a longer period of reconstruction within tribal land rather than directly under the American government. And maybe most interestingly of all, unlike in America, former black slaves received land reparations. It's a super cool, never-discussed part of history. And today, I have on with me Professor Elena Roberts, author of that book I mentioned earlier. It's called I've Been Here All the While, Black Freedom on Native Land. And she's super cool. She's a professor at University of Pittsburgh, and she's written for the Washington Post and Time Magazine and has a profile in CNN and the Boston Globe. Like I said, super cool. Thank you for coming, Professor. Thank you. Now, before we get into Black land ownership in Oklahoma that land wasn't empty land we've talked about on the show before back when we talked about housing segregation the fact that there's a historical erasure involved anytime you start a story about land as if the land was empty before you started telling the story and is not where your story starts so my first question is where and how is the proper way to tell this history
1: well, I like how you mentioned that a lot of stories about land and land ownership do not mention people who would have been on that land previous. And that is where I kind of saw my intervention kind of putting these stories together. Like, for example, Oklahoma is often known for its large number of all Black towns. And that's kind of a celebratory narrative. Black Wall Street, Bully, Oklahoma. Isn't it great that these Black people, you know, had this land ownership and were entrepreneurs? Which, of course, yes, it is amazing. It's great. But the story of the Native people who were on that land before and who really shaped that space before, I think is so important. And my narrative is trying to connect those and bring those together in the space of Indian territory, modern day Oklahoma, which I think is a great space to look at land ownership because there are three, well, three to four major groups that own land there and have various land claims that they really use similar language to justify and rationalize.
0: And this first group that I want to ask you about are the five tribes.
1: So these five tribes are the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Creek, Seminole, and Choctaw. And originally they were called the five civilized tribes because in the 1700s they adopted slavery. And so members of their tribes, in order to gain wealth and in order to assimilate to American culture, began owning enslaved Black people. And this led to them becoming more influential and more wealthy therefore more politically important in their nations. And so the same way that white slaveholders shaped a lot of the legislation and culture of the United States, these slaveholding members of these five tribes also shaped the culture and legislation of these Indian nations.
0: Yes, the five civilized tribes were the ones who owned slaves. And yeah, Native Americans also did own slaves. That's also not a thing that comes up very often. So how did they get to this
1: land? Well, so I think most of us know something about Indian removal. The 1820s, to 1830s, there is increased pressure from white settlers coming in from the east to settle in the southeast which is the homeland of these five tribes it's a really rich agriculturally lush land and white settlers want that land and so they eventually push out native people in order to really spread plantation slavery into these spaces like mississippi alabama georgia tennessee this is where we get the trail of tears i think the cherokees are probably most well known for the trail of tears but all of these nations as well as many other indian nations are pushed to indian territory in that period of time, from the 1820s to 1830s. And then of course, they rebuild when they get there.
0: And that's for me the first place your book mentions black people that I'd never even thought of because these tribes, they had slaves, as we just discussed. And when they moved from the Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia area, they brought their slaves with them. They were slaves on the Trail of Tears. And actually, your book mentions that people bought new slaves because if you own a person, they can like carry stuff with them on the Trail of Tears. So, there were Black people on the Trail of Tears. They experienced it.
1: They died on it. This event that we think of as so important to Native American history is also Black history for those people who were enslaved in those tribes. So, then
0: the five tribes end up in the Oklahoma area, Indian territory. So, what happens? How do they rebuild? The
1: kind of part of the story that my book really adds is that after Indian removal, they're not moving to again, in empty space, like there is really no empty space in North America. So there are already Native people living in what is Indian territory. People like the Uchis, uh, the Comanches, the Plains Apaches have already used this land as a home, as a hunting ground. And so they are actually moved and dispossessed to make way for people who themselves were possessed, the five tribes. And so they move in, they create schools, government buildings, homes, plantations. And in fact, they really rebuild a nation that is stronger and more economically successful than they had in the Southeast.
0: They didn't just move it and say, y'all, get out. They also used a lot of language towards the Native Americans who were already there that white people had used talking about Native Americans.
1: Yes. So in order to really claim this homeland and make it their own. They use words like wilderness. They call the Native people who are already there uncivilized and savage. And these terms, of course, sound familiar because these are what white Americans and white Europeans have used to describe Native people. But because the five tribes are in this kind of special category of supposedly civilized, they are really kind of creating a dichotomy between themselves and white Americans and the Native people who are already living there, the Western Native people, trying to really paint a picture of themselves as the real settlers, like the real legitimate inhabitants of this region.
0: And those displaced by the five tribes didn't just leave. They did their best to fight back and try to stay in their land. And that's when the five tribes, after attempting to separate themselves from those people over there, appealed to the American government for help.
1: Yeah, so the Western Plains people are raiding the five tribes. They're stealing goods. Sometimes they steal Black enslaved people. Sometimes they murder people. So they are claiming their space in a way as well. But the five tribes have the... U.S. government on their side. And really, in order to strengthen that relationship, they again position themselves as settlers, say, look, these people are coming at us. They're hurting us. You need to build a fort. You need to protect us because you moved us here. And the government does, right? Government does build a fort. After the
0: five tribes do this work to ally itself with the American government, the Civil War definitely Wrecks this completely because suddenly America itself is divided over the issue of slavery and Native Americans end up on both sides of the war.
1: So, just like the United States, they were split. So, all of the five tribes had members who fought on the side of the Union and the side of the Confederacy, which is why it is so clearly a power play that after the Civil War, the United States really blatantly ignores that there were members who did supposedly stay loyal to the Union and fought for the Union. Instead, they really only recognize the Confederate alliance and then try to punish them. So with
0: slavery abolished in America, this institution that was the Five Tribes' original claim to being civilized became a reason for their punishment and an opportunity for Black land ownership.
1: After the Civil War, we have really a transition where the U.S. is no longer interested in maintaining slavery, and that's no longer kind of seen as good. And so they forced the five tribes to free their slaves, to make those enslaved people part of their nations as citizens, and then also to give those enslaved people land. And that's where we get 40 acres of land that is specifically given to the former slaves of Chickasaws and Choctaws. But then all of these Black people get some portion of land.
0: So, yeah, there were some black former slaves who ended up with land reparations, but this was part of the Dawes Act, which I never learned involved black people because the big thing about the Dawes Act was that it allocated a lot of land that was supposed to be Indian territory into American hands.
1: So this land allotment is part of a greater project by the United States to basically eventually take over Indian territory. So they not only outline that Black people are going to be given land, Black people part of Native nations, but also the United States is going to take a huge amount of land, really almost two-thirds of the land that the five tribes had previously possessed in Indian territory, and that is going to be settled on by Americans So the narrative is usually like white Americans do land runs and they eventually come onto this land. But in this story, African-Americans are also a really important part because they are interested in migrating due to the black people that they see in Indian territory. And so they see these people have land, they hear about the treaties, they hear about not only land allotments, but also some of the money that people are receiving from these treaties. And so they, they come because they see it as a place that is, potentially to them like a racial paradise. You know, there aren't that many white people there immediately after the war and even going into the 1880s. So they see really an escape from the South, a new kind of possibility for them.
0: Was it a racial paradise?
1: No, (laughs) unsurprisingly. So there was certainly racism on the part of Native people. They did not for the most part, see black people as equal to themselves. But there was not the kind of like large scale organized violence that African Americans in the South saw with white people. So in that way, it was calmer, as well as the fact that they had ownership of land in the 1890s. But even before that, they could claim land and they could settle on it. they could build homes, they could build communities in a way that I feel wasn't possible in the South because there was always kind of the specter of violence. There was always a specter of not being able to vote and in the Indian territory you could vote. You could serve on a jury. You had all these kinds of rights really going up to Oklahoma statehood.
0: And that's again just a part of Reconstruction, that never gets talked about. That part of Reconstruction was black land ownership in Oklahoma. I do want to talk about black people who were formerly enslaved to Native Americans, because their experience is it's a little different because The tribe that they were once enslaved to, they didn't always treat them right. The Black people stayed anyway. And that relationship, that community, that's something that you talk about in your book that I want to spend some time on.
1: In my book, I divide all of these kind of different waves of settlement in Indian territory into different chapters. But in reality, this is all kind of happening at the same time. So African Americans are coming at the same time as what I call Indian freed people. The former slaves of Indians are also getting land and settling. But yes, they do have different experiences because the former slaves of Indians often do have connections to those nations, sometimes to the native people in those nations, but more often to the land that they have lived on or worked for generations and decades. And they have connections to these native spaces because they have spent much of their lives in them. And they have experienced traumatic things like the Trail of Tears or like being raided by Western Indians. And so even though they are facing sometimes violence, or even though for people like my ancestors who were owned by Chickasaws, they did not have citizenship. So the Chickasaws never followed through on their treaty promise to adopt them as citizens, the only tribe not to. And yet my family stayed in the nation because that land was so important to them, more so than political rights, which is again, different than the usual reconstruction narrative that it was only the vote. It was all about the vote. For my family, it wasn't about political rights. It was about land ownership.
0: That's a good point, this, to loop in the title, because that sentiment of I've been here all the while is a lot of why they stayed, right?
1: Yeah. So I've been here all the while is really a phrase that I saw repeated over and over again when I was looking at the testimonies of Indian freed people as they talked to the Dawes Commission as they were trying to get their land. And it was really a signal and a phrase that reflected their time in these nations, these times among these Native people, which for many of them was a very long time, multi-generational. So I've Been Here All the While is both a very practical thing, like I've been in this nation for a long time, I'm a former slave, please give me this land that I'm owed, but also really a marker of the kind of spiritual significance and importance of these spaces to these Black people.
0: So this had been Indian territory for a long time. And then as both Black and white Americans move in to start claiming land, we see from both of those groups and even Indian freed people, a lot of the same language used by the five tribes to depossess the Native Americans who were there before
1: them, even from Black people. Yes, that is kind of the only pushback I've gotten on this book so far, that people don't like the fact that I characterize Black people as settlers and as people who use language that we usually only associate with white Americans. And so we have people like Frederick Douglass calling Native Americans uncivilized. We have people like the former slaves of Indians saying that they're lazy or not as productive as white Americans. And I'm really showing that People of African descent can also buy into these ideas of kind of the settler colonial state that are prejudicial and biased, but also that these are strategic ideas meant to advocate for black migration, advocate for American support of black communities and black land ownership.
0: From the very beginning of the book, you talk about the way that like oppressed people can still oppress other people and try to use the tools of white supremacy, the language of white supremacy for their own end which did end badly for the native americans who lived there before them they got pushed out oh you were also talking about the way this might take a step back but the way that indian freed people were treated by the tribes after they were free was actually something that white people in america were critical of they talked about the natives as like savages who like mistreated black people which is truly the craziest thing
1: Yes. Indian territory is so interesting to me because you have the American government doing things and saying things that like they would never say about the United States and about African Americans there. So the United States is the entity that forces the five tribes to give black people land in the first place. And yet that is something that they are unwilling to do in the US. They're unwilling to take any land from a white American, even a white slaveholder, and give it to a black person. So they try that during the war and then they try to make it permanent to Congress after the war and they can't do it. They can't get enough agreement among Republicans. There is also the rights that they immediately give Indian freed people, which we don't see in the United States until like 1871. And then, of course, that's only black men who have the right to vote, whereas it is black men and women in the five tribes. And then, yes, like as the five tribes do or do not kind of follow through on these treaty promises, the United States is there saying, hey, you're not doing this. You need to treat your former slaves better. You need to do this. And it's so weird and so kind of hypocritical, but it's like they're able to see the wrongs when it's done by someone else that they can call uncivilized. But then when white people do it, it's totally okay. That part was just crazy for me.
0: The idea of like a white newspaper being like, look at this bad stuff Native Americans are doing as they're completely disenfranchising and perpetuating violence against Black people. And part of this is that this reconstruction land ownership and like distribution of rights lasts longer in the West than it does in America. That's part of what makes your reconstruction story longer.
1: Yeah, so... Historians disagree about when reconstruction ends, but if we want to say the kind of traditional 1877, in Indian Territory, I argue it goes up to 1907 and possibly even further. I actually in my book with the Tulsa Massacre. But the Native jurisdiction of Indian Territory makes the lives of these Black people different because you don't have kind of a white supremacist state over you. I mean, yes, you have Native people who are often prejudiced, but it's it's not kind of the same violence and the same kind of constant enforcement of the racial hierarchy. And so we really see the change in the 1890s as we have the creation of Oklahoma territory and the really mass settlement of white Americans. And then 1907 is when Oklahoma becomes a state. The very first law that is passed is a segregation bill. So like immediately we see a change and like the really kind of embrace of white supremacy.
0: The first law that was passed. So there was a complete just like new order. This is how it's going to be now. And that's the legal way things happen. Even before legalizing segregation, when Oklahoma became state, white settlers employed other means of oppressing black landowners in Oklahoma, the ones that were used to things like lynching and other acts of racial violence.
1: Yeah. So there was land theft. There was squatting on land owned by Native Americans and Black people, kind of pushing them out that way because they knew that by 1890, tribal courts were being dissolved. And that meant that white American judges were deciding things and they often didn't care necessarily about Native or Black ownership. There was kind of some violence, like it slowly starts in the 1890s with like a few lynchings, but we don't have really the introduction of mass white violence until the 1900s. And then there's just kind of a change in the idea of race and racial hierarchy with so many white people who are then able to use the American government support that is now for them. And it's no longer for the five tribes and it's no longer really for Indian freed people because when white Americans come, they are... Really, the main people that the colonial state is serving.
0: That's not surprising. But what is surprising is the fact that there was a time when both the five tribes and Black people, both Indian freed people and former American slaves, used the claim that they were more civilized than the people who already lived in the land to successfully own land in Oklahoma, which is the same rationality that white settlers used to take the land of both groups in Oklahoma. Which leads to another really interesting part of your book, which is that it ends with the Tulsa Massacre, because the prosperity on Black Wall Street was only really possible because of this history.
1: Yeah, so Tulsa specifically was originally a Creek settlement. And so a lot of the people who really were the originators of the businesses that were on Black Wall Street were Black Creeks. And then you also have people throughout the state and the region who are Black Indians and who are creating businesses, building towns, having possibly oil or gas on their land, which is also part of the wealth that creates Black Wall Street. So, yeah, the foundation of that Black community is really the Black Indian community that came before it.
0: And some of the people attacked during the Tulsa massacre were descendants of those Indian freed people. With the centennial of the Tulsa massacre happening right now, there's so many resources full of details about the prosperity of the Greenwood district of Tulsa and the violent burning and looting by white mobs that occurred because a Black man was accused of assaulting a white woman which is a similar narrative to a lot of the racial violence we've talked about before, actually. But how this ties into this story is the history of that land in Oklahoma. Tulsa was once Osage hunting ground, and the Creeks, a member of the five tribes, moved in. But then, when America discovered the oil and other natural resources in Tulsa, they bought up large portions of this land. But a portion of this was land allotted to Indian freed people prospered on it, along with Black Americans who moved into Tulsa to share in that prosperity. And the Greenwood district of Tulsa did prosper and was full of Black businesses until it was burned and looted. Then that history suppressed and no one ever punished for it. And that was the end of extended reconstruction for Black people under tribal jurisdiction. So the suppression of this history hid both the truth of this Black economic prosperity, but also this intersection of white Native American and Black claims to land. In looking at these successive waves of people moving into land and displacing those who were there before them to ultimately be displaced by white Americans, what's the lesson you see in that?
1: I think the lesson of Black Wall Street and of my entire book is that it never really pays to serve the colonial state. Like it never really pays to buy into white supremacy or the idea that different races are different or inferior because the settler state is always going to serve white Americans over anyone, even if you buy into these ideas or this system. So Black Wall Street is kind of an amazing demonstration of Black entrepreneurship, but it never really matters how much work Black people do or how much they kind of adhere to the laws of the state or whatever, because as any one of us knows listening to this, It doesn't necessarily matter when it comes down to it.
0: True, Dad. Your book, also one of the best parts about it for me, is that it's actually a family history. You're telling the story of how your family fits into this narrative of land ownership in Oklahoma, which, talk about making history real. You made it personal, which is so cool. And I definitely want to get into the familial aspect of this history.
1: I started kind of researching my family as a way of figuring out who I was and what was important to me. And I thought it was kind of just going to be, I don't know, the usual Black story of enslavement. Like, okay, we all African-Americans know that. And instead, I found out they were owned by Native Americans, which itself was like mind-blowing. We're not taught that. But as I started my dissertation and I found the actual testimony of my ancestor, Josie Jackson, and I saw how important land was to her, she migrated back and forth from Ardmore, Oklahoma, kind of the family community, and Dallas, Texas, which is where she worked with the white family to make money to bring home to her community and take care of her daughter. And so seeing that importance of that connection and maintaining that connection to that land is what really shaped this entire story. And so the oral history that I have from various members all kind of testifies to people within my family and the importance of that land. There are people like Jack Roberts, I talk about him, how he is the one who kind of initially after slavery, he was told by His former owners that if he could ride a horse in a day, cover as much land as he wanted, then he could claim that land. And so he lived on that land for a long time in what is now Ardmore. That land was then cut down substantially with his Dawes allotment, but it was still primarily some of that same area. I talk about Travis Roberts, who is my second cousin, who kind of was an amazing genealogist and keeper of a lot of this older history. I talked to Lily Roberts, who is my great aunt who lived in Robertsville and who then moved to Oklahoma City and started her own business. And I just feel very thankful that I have these stories and that I was able to use that to tell what I think is this much larger story about the way that Black, White, and Native people interacted in this Western space.
0: That's amazing. You unlocked a whole neglected part of American, Native American, and Black history through your own family story. Thank you so much for coming on my show today. Thank you for inviting me. So it turns out the Tulsa Massacre is not just a story of Black prosperity destroyed. It's also the story of multiple groups, Native Americans, Black Indians, Black Americans, and white Americans moving into land, using the power of the federal government to hold on to that land and depossess the people who are already there. It's a story of a longer version of Reconstruction involving Black land ownership and political rights and... A story that ends with America settling these conflicting claims by allowing white Americans to take the land. I've Been Here All the While is a really interesting book. There will definitely be a link to that in the show notes if you want it. And again, since the Tulsa Massacre's centennial is going to be the week this episode comes out, I'll definitely drop some stuff about it on social media. The show is at we the black People Pod on both Facebook and Instagram. And next time for Father's Day, we're going to talk about Black fatherhood. It's going to be good. I'll power all people, y'all.